All right, I hope that you found your way over to Matthew chapter 17 this morning, and uh, we're going to be preaching a message out of uh, verses 14 through 21. The Word of God says, And when they were come to the multitude, there, uh, come t- there came to him a certain man kneeling down to him and saying, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he is lunatic and sore vexed, for oft time he falleth into the fire and oft into the water. And I brought him to thy disciples, and they could not cure him. Then Jesus answered and said, O faithless and perverse generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I suffer you? Bring him hither to me. And Jesus rebuked the devil, and he departed out of him. The child was cured from that very hour. Then came the disciples to Jesus apart and said, Why could not we cast him out? Jesus said unto them, Because of your unbelief. For For verily I say unto you, If ye have faith as a grain of a mustard seed, Ye shall say unto this mountain, Remove hence to yonder place, and it shall remove, and nothing shall be impossible unto you. Howbeit this kind goeth not out but by prayer and fasting. May we pray again? Our Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for the the guidance and the leadership that your word gives to us. And Father, we pray that you'd lead us today through thy word. That word is truth. We believe it. And God, I pray that you'd uh, just uh, mobilize the Holy Spirit to work in amongst in our hearts, Lord, to, to speak to us, Lord. And Lord, I also pray that you, would, that you would bind any unholy spirit. I pray that you'd run them out of our presence, whether that's here in this building or in the places where our families are meeting together, gathered around the telephone or the, uh, the device. Father, I pray that you'd run out any unclean spirit, bind the adversary, and enable us this morning, Father, to be to hear from you, from your word. We thank you and we praise you and we ask your blessing. In Jesus' name, amen. The passage that we have just read is follows the miraculous transfiguration of the Lord Jesus. We find that story in verses 1 through 13 of the same chapter, Matthew 17. The record of the transfiguration of Christ is one of the most remarkable, wonderful, and glorious scenes I think that we can read about in the Word of God. And one might think, reading that story of the transfiguration, that mountaintop experience with Christ, uh, to be a pattern for life, you know, as Simon Peter said in verse number four, it is good for us to be here. We can, I think we can all understand uh, the mountaintop experience. But we also understand that there is no life lived ever anywhere that is always on the mountaintop. Somehow, some way, uh, Monday always follows a Sunday. Somehow, there's always a valley just over the top of that next ridge. And somehow, there are always things that remind us of our mortality and of the issues that we have to face in our lives. Certainly, we're going through one of those things right now. So so down from the mountain we come, just like Jesus and those apostles. And, and when they do, they see a multitude gathered before them, according to our story that we read this morning. And as we think about that multitude, I'd like to think about the different types of people that we find in this multitude that Jesus and the apostles encountered as they came down from that mount. First of all, I'd like to note that there was a a father who was afraid. Uh, 
a father who was afraid. I've come to learn over years of ministry, years of life, though I've not lived a long life yet, that there are people who fear everything, and there are people who fear nothing. And that has been part of the, part of the difficulty of leadership uh, through this current circumstance that we find ourselves in as the pastor of a church that even within the small group that we have, we're small in number, we're big in heart, amen? But even though with the, with the group of people we have, we have that entire spectrum of there's people that fear everything and people that fear nothing. Now, here's the strange or funny thing is that, is that the people who fear nothing think that the people who fear everything are foolish, and the people who fear everything think that the people who fear nothing are foolish. And so uh, I guess what I'm trying to communicate is we have to be patient with one another. And we're going to address that tonight, and I hope that you'll uh, approach this subject of of reassembling or getting back together as a church. I hope that you'll remember what I've just said, that as a pastor, I have to lead that whole group of people, those that fear everything and those that fear nothing, and both groups think that the other group is foolish. And so I hope that you'll be patient with one another. I hope that you'll be patient with me. But certainly in that multitude that Jesus and the apostles encountered, there was this father who was afraid. That father had come to the apostles, I believe, with tremendous hope. Uh, we can be sure that, that he brought his son to the apostles very optimistically. There's no doubt in my mind that he heard what was going on, that the apostles had the same power that Jesus had to heal. Of course, only Jesus retained the power to forgive sins and to grant eternal life, but the apostles had this power that they might validate the Word of God in that time before the complete revelation of God to man was in written form. And so the Father no doubt came optimistically. I mean, there were people that would bring the sick uh, from, the, from their homes, and they would set them in the street hoping that just the shadow of the apostles would pass over them, and the power uh, was so was so evident in that time that even if the shadow touched that loved one who was afflicted with something, uh, that they'd be made whole. And so, I'm, as you can imagine, word would get around, and I'm sure that this father was very optimistic. And, and so he brought his son to the apostles very optimistically that his son would be healed. And I'm sure that's what he thought when he brought his son to the apostles. My, my, son, my son will be healed soon of this affliction. But instead of being made well, they found that they, that they had no power at all to heal that young man. They had no power at all. And so now the father, I believe, is cast down into a deeper despair than he had ever known before. I mean, it was bad enough that his son was lunatic, as he described it. And we'll talk about that in just a moment. But now he brings them to the apostles, and not even the apostles that it had it exhibited this great power from God were able to heal him. And he stands there now in desperation before the Lord Jesus Christ. And look at what he says in verses 15 and 16. Lord, have mercy on my son, for he is lunatic and sore vexed. 
For oft times he falleth into the fire and oft into the water. And I brought him to thy disciples, and they could not cure him. And so I think the first person that we encounter as we, in our mind, uh, descend from the Mount of Transfiguration with the Lord and with the apostles is this father who was afraid. Secondly, I think that we would encounter this, a, a boy who was afflicted. We find something interesting here in the Word of God. When they came to the multitude, there was a, a certain man who kneeled down before the Lord and said, this father said, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he is, and here's the interesting thing, this word that's used, lunatic, for he is lunatic. That's a very interesting description, the description lunatic. Uh, this word of lunatic arose out of the supposition of the people. The Greek word for lunatic means to be affected by the moon. Uh, for example, the Latin word, or in addition to that, the Latin word for moon is luna. And so in the case of this man's son, to the people supposed that the boy's condition was somehow connected to the, the phases of the moon. Now that was just superstition or speculation or theory, but the universal feeling at that time in human history was that seizures were affected by the phases of the moon, and so they called people like that lunatics. And that's the word that's used here in the Greek text. Now the truth is that this lad was a, a victim of satanic possession. And I wish that we had more time to speak of the difference between satanic oppression and possession, the differences, the illness, the hurt, the disaster that is connected with them. But the boy was seized by an evil spirit that tore into him, and, and sometimes it cast him down frothing and foaming at the mouth into the fire, and sometimes it cast him down froming and frothing at the mouth into the water. It was, it was a pitiful sight. And so there was a father who was afraid. There was a boy who was afflicted. Number three, there were, there were scribes or scorners who were antagonistic. There were those in the crowd who were scornful and full of sarcastic vengeance. In the same story that's recorded about this event in Matthew chapter, Mark chapter 9, rather, and you might take your finger and put it over there in Mark chapter 9. We're going to be back and forth because in Mark chapter 9, it describes the same event here in Mark chapter 9. But in Mark chapter 9, Mark's account of this same event. In verse number 14, it says, And when he came to his disciples, he saw a great multitude about them and the scribes questioning with them. And that phrase, the scribes questioning with them, is where we draw that point from, that there were scribes who were antagonistic. The scribes were religious zealots. They were truthfully uh, what we would call uh, legalistic. They lived by the letter of the law. And so they were very zealous. I think they were very sincere. They were sincerely wrong. Uh, they believed that the way to God, the way to please God, was by keeping the whole law. But these religious zealots were always there ready to cast doubt if it appeared that the follower, that Christ or the followers of Christ failed. And in this case, the followers of Christ had failed. His, his apostles had failed themselves. And so I'm sure that the scribes were there to point the finger and to sarcastically be antagonistic and, and say, oh, I, you couldn't heal the boy, could you? Well, that's exactly what we expected. That's exactly what we thought. 
We see that sort of thing going on even today. Now, I'd like to give you some information or a key point concerning uh, what we would call scorners. Scorners do not represent the majority, and they're certainly not the representatives of God. Scorners, let me say it again, scorners, that even the ones that we face today, do not, are not the, they don't represent the majority, and they are certainly not the representatives of God. They, they do not have the largest voice. Scorners are never the majority, and they don't have the loudest voice. They, I'm sorry, the largest voice. They typically just have the loudest and most annoying voice, the most distracting voice. But the fact remains, scorners do not get the final word. God does. And so there was a, a father who was afraid. There was a boy who was afflicted. There were scribes or scorners who were antagonistic. And then third, fourthly, I noticed this. There's a multitude standing around. The multitude that was standing around began to be persuaded by the scorners, the scribes, and the Pharisees. Notice in, again, Mark chapter 9 and verse number 14, it says the multitudes were questioning with them. You see, they had picked up, the multitude had picked up the refrain, uh, the, 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 uh, the woeful refrain in ridiculing the apostles. I don't think there's anything in this world that will get us down like people repeating a scornful phrase or scornful refrain. I thought about this story in Numbers chapter 13, and just a moment ago I told you that scorners don't represent the majority, and they don't. And I'll explain because I know as soon as I begin to read this, you'll say, wait a minute, I thought you said that scorners do not represent the majority. But listen just a moment, and I'll try to explain. Numbers chapter 13 and verse number 32. Moses had sent 12 spies into the land of Canaan uh, to spy out the land. They returned with their reports, and we pick up with the story in verse number 32. And they brought up the 10, brought up an evil report of the land, which they had searched unto the children of Israel, saying, The land through which we have gone to search it is a land that eateth up the inhabitants thereof, and all the people uh, we saw in it are men of great stature. And there we saw the giants, the sons of Anak, which come of the giants, and we were in our own sight as grasshoppers. So we were in their sight. And all the congregation lifted up their voice and cried, and the people wept that night, and all the children of Israel murmured against Moses and against Aaron, and the whole congregation said unto them, Would God that we had died in the land of Egypt, or would God we had died in this wilderness. And so we see that in that story, the multitude, the majority, picks up the refrain of the minority. Now I understand the majority of the spies came back with this evil report, uh, but, uh, but they still weren't the majority. And they still don't get the final word. God got the final word in that case, as he always will. Because the scorner doesn't represent God. Scorners don't get the last word. God does. And there's nothing in this world that will get us down like people that repeat a scornful refrain. Remember this. Spiritually minded people uh, put problems in perspective with God. They, they, they look at a problem... But they look at a problem from the perspective of God's perspective. So spiritually minded people 
put problems in perspective with God. Unspiritually minded people, they take problems, they remove God out of the picture, and then they inflate the problem. Let me say that again. Spiritually minded people put problems in perspective with God. They see that there's no problem that's bigger than God. But unspiritually minded people will take a problem, they'll remove God out of the picture, and then they will inflate the problem. That is exactly what happened here with the boy and, and seemingly with the powerless apostles. The, the scorn of the scribes pointing their fingers and convincing the multitude standing around saying, see, it's not real. They fail. Whatever it was before, you can't believe that report. And now they failed. And now you've seen it for yourselves. It's not true. Can I tell you something else about scornful people? They remove God out of the picture. They inflate problems. They, they have the loudest and most annoying voices. And I'll tell you something else about scornful people. They are never wrong in their own eyes, and they can never be convinced that they are. They view things in such a way that they cannot be wrong. They use circular reasoning. They say things like, we curb the spread of coronavirus by stripping people of their civil liberties when there's no true way to prove whether their dictatorial measures did anything or not. It's a bit like a weather forecast. You know, weather forecasters, meteorologists are never wrong. They, if they say there's a 20% chance of rain, you know what? Uh, if it rains, they're right. And if it doesn't rain, they're right as well. And, and that's the way scorners reason. They start off with a presupposition about something and and they, they look at the causation and they, they use circular reasoning and they are never wrong and they can never be wrong in their own eyes and they can never be convinced that they are wrong. Now, I might lose you, uh, some of you, on this next bit of old wisdom uh, that has been around for years and years and years. But, but, but thinking about that idea uh, and, and that, to, you know, the scorner reasoning, much like a weather forecast forecaster gives a weather forecast, the success of a rain dance is largely connected to its timing. And so it, what I'm trying to say is, you know, those that believe in rain dances uh, can have a rain dance today. And if it doesn't rain today or tomorrow or the next day, but it rains the day after that, they're still, they're still right. They're still right. And as a matter of fact, if, it, if you have your rain dance today and it doesn't rain today, just rain dance again tomorrow and just keep pounding on it, keep pounding on it, keep pounding on it. Guess what? Sooner or later, the scorner is going to be correct and they can never be wrong. And, so, and, and, and they have the loudest voice. They have the, uh, the most distracting voice, uh, but they do not represent the majority. They do not get the final word. Uh, they cast God out of the picture and they inflate the problem. And it, often what it does is it leads the majority, the, uh, the unthinking majority, it leads the majority to the same conclusion. And it's an awful shame that that's the case. That's what happened in this story. There was a, a, a father who was afraid. There was a boy who was afflicted. There were scribes who were antagonistic, scorners who were antagonistic. And then there was a multitude standing around. Fifthly, there were those who were supposed to be apostles. Now, can you imagine how humiliated and, 
cast down the apostles must have been. Look at Matthew chapter, well, I mean, you can go there if you'd like, but in Matthew chapter 10, I'll just describe it. You don't have to go there. But in Matthew chapter 10, we're told that, that the Lord Jesus called unto him as 12 apostles, and he gave them power against what the Bible says, unclean spirits, to, to cast them out and to heal all manner of sickness and all manner of disease. But they couldn't do it for that boy. And then, to make matters more humiliating, Jesus shows up and he says in Matthew 17, 17, let's find it here. O faithless and perverse generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I suffer you? Bring him hither to me. And with one word, Jesus frees this boy from his affliction. What an embarrassing and humbling event that must have been. And so right after this, the disciples go to Jesus privately. I, I can imagine why they wouldn't want to publicly. They've already been publicly humiliated. It wasn't like Jesus said this thing in a vacuum. He said it to the a whole multitude standing there. And the whole multitude had just witnessed the fact that the apostles were powerless to heal the boy. And Jesus comes along and says, Oh, faithless and perverse generation, how long? How long? And then he, with just a word, heals the boy. And they searched their souls. They couldn't find an answer. And so they took it to Jesus privately and they said, Lord, why? Why? I think it's a good thing to get apart with God when we notice a lack of power in our lives. We sense a lack of power in our walk with the Lord and our work for the Lord and with a teachable spirit. We ask, Lord, why? I think we're bound to do better. If we sincerely ask, why, Lord? And God will have an answer because He always does. When Jesus answered, I think He answered in a way that, that they probably never thought of. Uh, perhaps they thought the Lord might deliver a sermon on Satan and and his kingdom and his power upon the demons and their power, or upon the forces of darkness that we battle against. But, but what the Lord communicated to the disciples was this. It's not Satan and his power. It's not the demons and the darkness with which we wrestle against. The reason, disciples, that you could not heal that boy, the reason is in you. In Matthew 17, 20, Jesus plainly said, because of your unbelief, because of your unbelief. Did you know that there are more than 4,000 religions or belief systems in this world? And of those 4,000 religions and belief systems in this world, nearly all of them contradict one another and all of them uh, in some way differentiate from one another. 4,000 and they're all different. If they weren't different, then there wouldn't be 4,000. There'd be one. And so there's these 4,000 religions and belief systems in the world, and they contradict one another. And because of these, these differences, the fact is, not all of them can be right. And here's what the point about belief is, really, that we need to, we really need it to, to internalize this in our hearts. At the end of the day, it does not matter what I want you to believe or what you want me to believe. At the end of the day, all that matters, listen, all that matters is what God wants us 
to believe. Somehow, some way, unbelief limits the arm of God. Now, when I say that, that might settle wrong with somebody. And they might say, well, what about what Isaiah 59.1 says, where the Bible tells us, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, neither his ear heavy that it cannot hear. My friend, you need to read verse 2 as well, which says, But your iniquities have separated between you and your God, and your sins have hid his face from you that he will not hear. And somehow unbelief, unbelief about the fact that we're sinners, unbelief about what sin is, unbelief about our need of a Savior, somehow unbelief limits the arm of God. Unbelief corrupts the foundation upon which God has established His throne. Here's the fact. Jesus can walk on water. We know that from the story in God's Word. Jesus can raise the dead. Jesus can cleanse the leper. Jesus can heal the blind, blind from birth. Jesus can cast out demons, but Jesus cannot work amongst people who do not take God at His word. And by the way, that's what belief is. Belief is taking God at His word. It's, it's synonymous, that definition could be synonymous with the word faith. Faith is taking God at His word. And Jesus cannot work amongst people that do not take him at his word. Speaking of his own hometown in Matthew chapter 13 and verse number 58, it says, And he, Jesus, that is, did not many miracles or many mighty works there because of their, can you guess what it was? Because of their unbelief. Of all the places in the world that Jesus should have been able to do the mighty works of God. It should have been in his own hometown, Nazareth. But the Bible records this sad testimony of, of the people of Jesus' hometown and that he could not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief, because Jesus cannot work amongst people who do not take God at his word. God wants people who take him at his word. He wants to... He wants people who believe great things from His hands. God honors faith. That's why the Bible tells us in Hebrews 11 and 6, without faith it is impossible to please Him. We talked about the scribes a moment ago. They, they thought it was possible to please God by keeping the Ten Commandments. Really, there were 613. And so they, they observed the letter of the law, the true definition of legalism. Just because somebody has a standard, a a, a conviction about things doesn't mean they're legalistic. Just because a, a person uh, uh, has a standard of life that, uh, that might be high in its morals doesn't mean that they're legalistic. Uh, no, that's not what legalism is. But these scribes were legalistic by definition. And they thought that their legalism could please God and would give them a relationship with God and a home in His presence for eternity. But the Bible still stands. Without faith, it is impossible to please Him. Let me say that in the context of the definition we just used. Without taking God at His word, it is impossible to please God. Well, how can we know what, what God's word is? Well, that's not really that hard of a question because we have in our laps or on our apps, or if you're watching this morning, I have in my hand, God's complete revelation of Himself to mankind. 
And so when it comes to those 4,000 systems of belief that we find in this world, you have to filter every one of them through this book. And as soon as, as one of those man-made belief systems contradicts this book, it's thrown out. And at the end of the day, there's going to be one left, and it's going to be the way of the cross. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. That's what God wants you to believe. God wants you to put away the good works that the scribes attempted. God wants you to, uh, to put away uh, sacraments. He wants you to put away uh, beliefs and things like, uh, like baptisms and, and, and the fact that you are born into a Christian family. And he wants you to take him at his word. The Bible says in 1 John in chapter 5, this this is the record that God hath given to us eternal life, and this life is in His Son. Here it is, as plain as we can put it. He that hath the Son hath life, and he that hath not the Son of God hath not life. The wrath of God abides on that person that is without Christ and is trying to make their way into the presence to please God without faith, without taking God at His word and believing what God wants us to believe. If you're listening this morning or watching this morning, I want to plead with you to take a look at God's Word. See what thus saith the Lord. See what the Bible says about your sins. See what the Bible says about your lost condition. See what the Bible says about our wonderful Savior. See what the Bible says about, about how you can know for sure that when you come to the end of this life, that you can be in the presence of God forever. And greater than that, from this day forward, if you'll just place your faith and trust in Christ and take God at His word, you can have a relationship with God that doesn't start the day you die. It starts the day that you place your faith and trust in Christ. And for the believer this morning, I want to encourage you to not ever give up on faith. Never give up on taking God at His word, especially when we've, been, when we've given something to the Lord. Some affliction or some fear that we have. It, it may seem impossible to us. It, it may be on our ability to grasp. But it, uh, listen, the scorner doesn't get the, the final word. And boy, the, the master of all scorners is the, the devil himself. And he doesn't get the final word. God gets the final word. Though the devil whispers in your ear and says, it's not possible. It can't happen. He doesn't get the last word. God gets the last word. God gets the last word. Don't ever give up on faith. Don't ever give up on something, especially when you've given it to the Lord. It might be impossible with us beyond our ability to grasp it, but it's not beyond God's. Bring it to Jesus and give Jesus a chance in it. Invite Him in. Lay it before Him. That's what is recorded in Matthew chapter 17, verse number 18, where God says, And Jesus rebuked the devil, and he departed out of him. The child was cured from that very hour. The child was cured from that very hour. You see, they gave Jesus a chance in it. They turned from everything they thought. They turned from everything they thought would save that boy. And they trusted in Christ alone. They invited Christ in. They laid the problem before our Lord. That's exactly what we just described in Matthew chapter 17. So there's five people. 
Five types of people that we find in this multitude. A father who was afraid. A boy who was afflicted. Scorners who were antagonistic. A multitude standing around. Those that were supposed to be apostles. You see, those people knew. Those people knew what those apostles were supposed to be able to do. And ladies and gentlemen, let me tell you, the unbelieving world knows what the Christian is supposed to be. They know what the Christian is supposed to be. I've given this testimony before, but I'll give it again. Dad, if you're listening, I'm sorry about this, but when I was 16 years old, I snuck out to the Studio 28 on 28th Street in Grand Rapids, Michigan, and I went to a movie at the movie theater. And when I walked in the front doors, our neighbor was walking by the front doors when I came into the Studio 28. And she, who was an unbeliever, looked at me, who she knew was a believer, and said this, what are you doing here? Well, we've become calloused against sin, haven't we? I mean, it's not an unusual thing to find a, a believer in a movie theater anymore. I guess God changed his mind, didn't he? No, we've become more calloused. You see, we... We set our standards. We're looking at the wrong place. We're looking at the world and distancing ourselves from the world when we should be looking to God to see how far our distance is from God. But my neighbor knew what a Christian was supposed to be. And I was ashamed. I wasn't ashamed enough to leave, but I was ashamed. And, she, and what she was saying to me, what my neighbor was saying to me was, you're supposed to be a Christian. Oh my and that's another group we found there in that multitude, those who are supposed to be apostles. You know, when a Christian doesn't live a Christian life, and ladies and gentlemen, it's not about just doing what's good. It's about doing what's best. When a Christian doesn't do what's best, all it does is it fuels the fire of the scorner, who in turn will have a loud and antagonistic and annoying voice and will sway the multitude, and pretty soon, the believer has no influence in this world. And if you don't think that's true, you look at what, ha what has happened all across this world with churches, and now it's happening in the United States. And, uh, and, and, the gar and things are risen up against the church, against the church, against the church, against the Christian. And the Christian has no influence in this world, not like they used to. It's a shame, isn't it? We need revival. A father who was afraid, a boy who was afflicted, scribes who were antagonistic, a multitude standing around those who were supposed to be apostles. But may I add one more to the list in closing? There was, a, there was a Savior who had the answer. There was a Savior who had the answer. You know, Jesus did not only have the answer, Jesus was the answer. I want to look again at Mark's record of this, of this event. If you'll go to Mark chapter 9. Mark chapter 9 and verses... 23 and 24. We're going to look at this record again uh, in the book of Mark, Mark rec Mark's record of it. Mark chapter 9, verses 23 and 24. The Word of God says that Jesus said unto him, If thou canst believe, all things are possible to him that believeth. And straightway the father of the child cried out and said with tears, Can you, oh, Lord, I believe. Here it is. Help thou mine unbelief. Help thou mine unbelief. Help thou mine unbelief. The Lord understands the limitations of human flesh. When we deal with the limitations of our human flesh, you ought to tell God about it just like that 
That fearful father told Jesus, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. You might tell the Lord, Lord, to the extent that I can, I believe, but where I stagger and stumble, help mine unbelief. May I, may I tell you this morning, I pray that way often. Lord, I believe, help mine unbelief. And God honored the commitment of that desperate father and the Lord healed the boy. Look at verses 25 through 27, the book of Mark, when Jesus saw that the people came running together. He rebuked the foul spirit, saying unto him, Thou dumb and deaf spirit, I charge thee, come out of him, and enter no more into him. The spirit cried and rent him sore, and came out of, the, of him. And he was as one dead, insomuch that many said, He's dead! You see? The scorner taking a small problem and inflating it. Now, now he's dead. Oh, look, Lord Jesus killed him. No, he wasn't dead. Jesus took him by the hand, lifted him up, and he arose. Do you see that? You know what God asks of us this morning and every day and every moment of every day? God does not ask of us the, the faith that we do not have. Did you hear? God does not ask of us the faith that we do not have, but the faith which we do. Matthew chapter 17 and verse number 20. Jesus said this, if ye have faith as a grain of mustard seed, ye shall say unto this mountain, Remove hence to yonder place, and shall remove, and nothing shall be impossible unto you. You know, if we will exercise the faith that we have, God can save, God can sustain, God can heal, God can bless, and God can strengthen. And that's just the invitation that we offer this morning. Maybe we do not have all the answers, but but we don't need to because God does. God doesn't just have the answers. God is the answer. Somebody might say, well, well, Pastor Greg, it sounds to me like you think Jesus is the answer for, for everything in this world, for everything that's going on wrong in the United States. And, and my answer to that is, yes, He is the answer. He, we don't need to know all the answers because God does, and God is the answer. You know, maybe, maybe we're not able, but God is. Maybe we fight battles that we cannot win, but has it ever occurred to you that God has never lost a battle and He never will? Think about that. So the invitation is given. Will you? Would you? Can you? Then come. Come to Jesus. and Invite Jesus in. Believe and receive and become a child of God. Lay, lay the problem before the Lord, just like this father laid his son before the Lord and said, hey, I've done everything I can do, Lord. And now, now I'm trusting in you alone. I'm, I'm forsaking everything that I thought would save and I'm trusting you. Lay the problem before the Lord. I think about that father who was afraid. Is there a fear that you have that you need to, to bring before the Lord this morning and lay that fear before the Lord? Say, Lord, you, you handle it. Because I know that you can. I have just enough faith to believe that you can handle this. And, and where my faith ends and my flesh begins, Lord, help thou mine unbelief. Maybe there's an affliction. Maybe there's an affliction that you face in life. You know the greatest affliction? 
that a person can face is being blinded by the devil. The Bible says that if our gospel be hid, it is hid to them that are blinded by the devil. You might be watching or listening this morning and you're afflicted with blindness. You say, I'm hearing what you're saying. I, uh, I've heard what the word of God says, but I don't get it. I don't see it. Well, maybe this would be an opportunity for you to get before a holy and righteous God. Say, God, I don't know. I want to take you at your word. I don't understand it. But God, as much as I can, I believe, but help thou mine unbelief. Maybe a problem problem that you might be facing this morning is the spirit of antagonism. You found yourself either as one of those that are the scorners or one that's in the multitude reasoning with the scorner. You ought to bring that before the Lord this morning. There's no room for that in the Christian life. There's no room for, for that critical spirit. The Holy Spirit of God can't, can't work in and amongst that. He won't. Maybe it's the problem this morning of standing around like a multitude. That's where we find most people, just standing around, being idle, not doing anything, looking at what we can't do instead of what we can do. Maybe bring that problem before the Lord. Maybe, maybe take that to the Lord this morning during invitation time and say, Lord, I don't know what to do. Will you show me? Will you put somebody in my pathway that I can witness to? Maybe that's... Your heart's plea to God this morning. Or, or maybe, maybe you're like the apostles and you need to spend some time with the Lord and say, Lord, why, why am I so powerless in my influence, in my life? Why am I so powerless against the things that tempt me? You might bring that before the Lord and say, Lord, I'm supposed to be a Christian I'm supposed to be a Christian. Any number of those things this morning, I invite you to allow the Lord to examine you, to speak to your heart. There's a Savior that has the answer. He is the answer. And I hope that you'll find that to be true this morning. I'd like to have a word of prayer. And we're going to close after that word of prayer. We're going to see you back here tonight at 6 o'clock. But we're going to close with this word of prayer. And after we're done praying, I would like for you to get alone with God and allow Him to examine you, to deal with you, for you to open yourself to God and say, God, what are you trying to communicate to me through this message this morning? Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your goodness. We thank You for Your Word. And wherever we might find ourselves in this multitude this morning, well, Father, reveal it to us. Deal with us. Help us, Lord. Strengthen our faith. And Lord, where our faith ends and our flesh begins, help our unbelief. Lord, I pray that if there's any that are listening that have not yet trusted in Christ as their Savior, that today would be the day that from their heart they would say yes to Jesus. Bring their affliction before Him and allow Him to fix the problem. Oh Lord, for all others that might be listening or watching, God, speak to us. We love you. We thank you. We ask your blessing. In Jesus' name, amen.